as we continue to work our way verse by verse through this book of the Bible. And in these days, we're working our way through the account of Joseph and his brothers, uh, Genesis 37 through 50. We're now at Genesis 41, and at the end of that chapter, um, before we read, let me clear up a little debate that we've been having. The other night, I mentioned that the Pharaoh was considered by ancient Egypt to be the living incarnation of the Egyptian sun god, Re. In fact, he was called the son of Re, to which many of you thought, I thought it was Ra. I mean, have you heard, heard that before, that the Egyptian sun god was Ra? Well, actually, there's a debate among Egyptologists and people who know these things about whether it's R-A, Ra, or R-E, Re. So that's why, if you're wondering why I use that, it's just because the commentaries I use said Re rather than Ra. So there you go. All right, we're going to pick up tonight, uh, beginning in verse 46. And so let's begin Genesis 41, beginning in verse 46. Well, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Let's just stop there. We'll come back to the rest of the passage. Um, last time, we were in verses 36 through 45. And we saw there the exaltation of Joseph. He had been a slave. He had been in prison. Suddenly he is now raised up to the highest office in the land besides that of being Pharaoh himself. Uh, most scholars would say Joseph was now the second most powerful man on planet Earth at that time. And so last time we saw the exaltation of Joseph. Now tonight we're going to look at the remainder of this chapter under these three headings. We're going to see the days of gathering, we're going to see Joseph's boys, and then we're going to see the days of famine. So the days of gathering, seven years, then Joseph's boys, born towards the end of that time, and then the seven years of famine. And under each of these headings, we'll be seeking to unpack the truths of Scripture and, and what they have to say to us in our day and our time. Now remember, God had revealed to Pharaoh through a dream interpreted by Joseph that there would be seven years of plenty in the kingdom of Egypt. Seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. Famine so severe that the years of plenty would be forgotten. And Joseph then suggested to Pharaoh that a man be put in place to lead the nation in gathering and storing food during those seven abundant years so that there would be food during the seven years of famine. He even suggested that Pharaoh appoint overseers in the various regions of Egypt to cause this to work on a local level so that each area would have their own storehouses where food was being kept to be distributed during the years of famine. Pharaoh has now given that entire task over to Joseph. 
Joseph now has all of the privileges, all of the authority, but he also now has all of the responsibility of preparing the kingdom of Egypt for the famine that is coming. He is the new prime minister, and his responsibility is to do what needs to be done to save thousands of lives. Now, in verse 45, the last verse we read last time, we saw Joseph beginning to go over the land of Egypt. He's beginning to travel the Egyptian kingdom to put the necessary mechanisms in place to bring this plan together. And that's where we pick up, and that's where we just read. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and he goes through all the land of Egypt, and he gets to work. He begins putting in place this plan. Now, we see first that Joseph was 30 when he was exalted in Egypt. So Joseph is still a young man. He's a young man who has been through more suffering in his 30 years than most of us will go through in our entire lives. When we first met Joseph, he was 17. And in the 13 years that followed, he set an example for us. And he set an example for young men and young women of of what it means to be faithful to God what it means to trust in God and hold on to your integrity in the midst of some of the most severe trials. Well, now the dreams given to Pharaoh begin to come true. The earth does begin to produce and to produce bountifully. For seven years, the the fields of Egypt are beautiful, right? The, The cotton is just coming out into full bloom like it is in some fields right now where it looks like it's just snowed. Right there, uh, the, the, the corn, the soybeans, that's what we would have here, right? That, it, it's all coming up and it's coming up well. In fact, in the Hebrew, it actually uses the word handfuls. It says the earth was producing by handfuls. And so these were very happy times in Egypt. These seven years were, were years in which the kingdom continued to flourish. Certainly, the people of Egypt would have been tempted to indulge in feasting and extravagance in these seven plentiful years. But Joseph had established the one-fifths rule. That is, that one-fifths of the produce, of the produce, of the produce, right, from each year was to be stored away to be kept until the days of famine. He was setting this aside as a reserve for the more difficult days ahead. Now, that is really the most important truth for us in that first paragraph. We are to learn the importance of not indulging in our blessings, but rather enjoying them with moderation and making preparations for more difficult times ahead. It can be very easy in times of prosperity to convince ourselves that times will never change. That things are going well now, and therefore they will always go well. And yet, they never do. That is, just as surely as the sun rises in the morning, it also goes down at night. And just as surely as our world experiences happy seasons and seasons of blessing, so there are also seasons of darkness, seasons of turmoil and poverty. Every society goes through positive, plentiful seasons and seasons of lack. Every family, every individual, we live in a fallen world in which there are both wonderful good times and difficult hard times. We need to be aware of this. How many in our own country 
spent extravagantly just a few years ago, spending themselves far more than they should, spreading themselves thin on these big ticket items, even going into debt on on houses they could not afford. And if the economy had stayed as it was, if things had continued to boom the way they seemed to be booming, they would have been fine. But we're not in heaven yet. And every boom becomes a bust ultimately in this world. And I know there's probably many of us even in here who wish we had made better preparations just a few years ago for the tougher times that were ahead. Proverbs 21.20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. The wise man keeps it safe, stored up, ready for difficult times. The foolish man devours it. Proverbs 6, 6 6-8 Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food for harvest, in harvest. The idea is we can learn a lesson even from the animal kingdom about preparing for harder times, preparing for darker times. We can see how many animals store up food during the time of harvest, during the time of plenty, to prepare for the winter ahead. Just a couple of weekends ago, when when Crystal and I and the boys were in Kentucky for the Ram board meeting, uh, we got to stop at a little place called the Salato Wildlife Center there in Frankfort, Kentucky. And this is just a little place that lets you go in for free and see some of the animals that they have. And one of the animals they had there was a, a black bear. And we noticed how incredibly fat this particular black bear looked. You know, we we had actually just seen black bear a few days before this in Tennessee, and and they hadn't looked like this. I mean, this black bear was 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 just fat. And we were wondering why he was so big. But then we remembered the weather had turned cold, winter is quickly approaching, and God created bears with this instinct to store up more fat in their bodies so that they will be able to live through the hibernation period in the winter. And so the question for us is, have we learned this lesson? Have we learned it from creation? Have we learned it from the Bible? Have we learned to plan and prepare for difficult times ahead? It's interesting, in the Scriptures, being a careful planner and not living on on whims is a mark of true godliness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent leads surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So which one are we? Are we the the hasty people? Do we live from whim to whim? What I feel like today, what I want today? Or are we carefully enjoying what God has given us with moderation, always setting other things aside, knowing that because maybe we have it good today, there's no guarantee we'll have it good tomorrow. Related to this is Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. In other words, a good man saves some of what he has in order to pass it on to his children and even to his grandchildren. But those who do not do this, who spend wastefully, Whatever they get ultimately passes right through them back out into the world and ultimately it ends up with those who are wise and righteous, those who are saving and storing up. It will ultimately be those who use money righteously, who are frugal, who save for future generations. 
who will be blessed with what they need in the hard times. Now, of course, ultimately, Joseph was leading Egypt to save for the welfare of the people. And the Scriptures also calls us to save for the care of those who are in need. That is, this isn't simply a selfish thing or a self-centered thing. We're not to have any trace of greed in us. Are we clear on that? That there's a difference between saving out of love for your, for your family, out of love for those who are in need, wanting to be able to give to those who are going to have hard times. That's very different than, than I'm storing up just for the love of money or just for the love of possessions. Paul told the church in Corinth, on the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. You see, this money was going to go to help the Christians in Jerusalem who were struggling through poverty and persecution. And so the lesson here is for us to learn to be wise and to be frugal with the blessings God brings our way, planning ahead, not only so that we can take care of our own households, right, First Timothy, right? we want to be able to take care of our own households, but we also want to be able to have something to give to those who are in need when the hard times come. Now, those are the days of plenty. Let's look at Joseph's boys, Joseph's boys. Begin reading in verse 50, verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So during these years of, of prosperity... Not only was Egypt fruitful, but Joseph was fruitful. God gave Joseph two sons through his wife, Asenath. Now, last week, we just kind of glossed over the fact that Joseph married a pagan woman, a woman who was actually the daughter of a pagan priest. So let's kind of address that real quickly, kind of head on tonight. Throughout the book of Genesis... And throughout the scriptures, we are taught the principle that Christians are to marry within the family, that God's people are to marry other children of God. We're not to marry those who do not know God. We're not to marry those who do not love the true God. For such a spouse will be a hindrance to us and not a help to us in our life of seeking to serve the Lord Jesus. And so how do we explain the fact not only that Joseph took this daughter of a pagan priest to be his wife, but actually the book of Genesis says nothing negative about it, which is interesting. Because when other men take pagan wives in the Bible, and even in the book of Genesis, almost always there's something negative said about it. And yet for some reason here when Joseph does it, there's not a single word negatively said about it. So some possible reasons for this. Number one, it's very possible that Joseph had very little choice in the matter. Joseph's wife seems to have been given to him at the same time that he was given his freedom from prison, at the same time that he was given his freedom from slavery. He was brought into his new position. He was given his new robes. Pharaoh put the signet ring on his finger and said, here is your new wife. This is who you are. And, and there it was. And so it may have been that Joseph actually had very little choice. Second, the Bible is silent as to exactly what conversations may or may not, but may have taken place 
and preparations for this marriage. Uh, From what we have seen of Joseph's integrity in the past, it is certainly possible that Joseph asked that any wife that be given to him be one who was willing to take his God as her God. Remember Ruth and Naomi, right? Ruth was a Moabite. She was raised as a pagan, and yet she was willing to follow her mother-in-law Naomi to Bethlehem. And she said, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And so perhaps Joseph's wife was willing to do the same and to take his God as her God. Others have pointed out that Joseph was now being given a position of great power in a society that was highly erotic. That is, it would have been expected of him in that Egyptian kingdom, in his high position as a young man, to sleep with many women and to enjoy a life of sexual indulgence. And so how could Joseph, still a a handsome young man, resist this temptation to easy sex that was going to be around him every day? But one of the reasons that God instituted marriage was as a safeguard for sexual purity. Now, it's not the only reason God instituted marriage. It's not even the main reason that God instituted marriage. But Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9, that if a single person cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. He says it is better to marry than to burn with passion. One of the reasons that our own culture is so full of sexual sin is that we're being told that boys and girls are hitting puberty earlier, but they're marrying later. Too many kids are being told not to marry until they finish college or until they even finish grad school or even don't get married until you have your own home and you're financially stable. And all the while they're being burdened with the struggle of seeking to be sexually pure when obviously God gave marriage as a help to that. And so Joseph's marriage to this daughter of a pagan priest may have been by force, It may have been by her willingness to embrace his God. may have been seen by Joseph as a preventative to sexual sin. It may have been a combination of those things. And then, of course, there is another option. It could have just been sin. Because Joseph was not perfect, right? He is, as we've seen many times, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a micro-savior pointing to the ultimate true Savior. But he was not the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a sinner. And so what it all boils down to is in the end, it still may very well have been sin. But we do know that Joseph continued to love and trust his God. He does not give his sons Egyptian or pagan names. He gives his sons Hebrew names. Names that are names that honor God and thank the true God. The first son he has is Manasseh. And that name, Manasseh, sounds like the Hebrew word for forget, to forget. And Joseph says that he chose this name because now God has made him to forget all his hardship of all his father and all his father's house. Do you see those words um, there in verse 51? God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Some people really get all over Joseph for saying that he has now forgotten his father's house, right? And when I'm talking about some people, I mean men no less than than Calvin, the great commentator, right? He says on this passage, he says Joseph sins because he has forgotten his father's house. He even says this is a warning to us 
about the attractions of the world and how the attractions of the world can draw us away from godliness. He says this, Joseph, although he purely worships God, is yet so captivated by the sweetness of honor and has his mind so clouded that he becomes indifferent to his father's house and pleases himself in Egypt. This was almost to wander from the fold of God. Well, I don't think that's true. That is, I don't think that's what's happening in this text. And, and most commentators today don't think that's what was happening in this text. When Joseph says that he has now forgotten his father's house, I don't think he means, I, have now, I now have no concern for my father Jacob. I now don't care anything else about my 11 brothers. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. Remember, this is not just his family we're talking about. This is the chosen family of God. This is the family from whom the Messiah will come. And Joseph has been taught that since a child. He knows that. So I think what Joseph means is that God has now made him to forget all of the glory and the riches that he was to have in his father's house, which were then taken away from him wrongly by his brothers. Remember, as a boy, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. It was Joseph who was given the robe that declared him to be the head of his brothers. He was not the firstborn, but Jacob treated him and put him in the place of the firstborn. Joseph was going to receive the chief inheritance. As a 17-year-old young man, Joseph's future looked bright. And all of the glory and all of the wealth that he anticipated was taken from him by his brothers when they attacked him and sold him into slavery. What a loss. And yet now, seeing where he is and what God has done for him and how God has blessed him, that loss seems so small, so small that he's willing even to forget it. The glory he would have had as head of his brothers seems small compared to the glory he now has as the second most powerful man in the world. The wealth he would have had as being the head of Jacob's household once Jacob was gone, being head over all of those flocks and fields, seems like nothing compared to having all of the assets of Egypt now at his disposal. God made it easier for Joseph to forgive what his brothers had done to him because of where he is now. That's what Manasseh's name signifies. Look at how good God has been to me. I went through so much suffering. I was treated so wrongly, and yet God has doubly blessed me. It's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 when he says that the glory to come is so great that it's not even worth comparing with the suffering we had before. He's saying the glory is so much better. What God is doing through me, what he's brought me into, is so much better than the suffering I went through. That I'm, It's okay now. It's easy for me to forgive now. And then Manasseh has a brother. Manasseh's brother is Ephraim. Ephraim's name means twice fruitful. Joseph says that his God has made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. For 13 years, Joseph had been a foreigner in this country. He had been a slave and a prisoner suffering unjustly in this country. Now, in this very same country, he is now chief over the Egyptians. He now has an Egyptian name. He now has an Egyptian wife. He now speaks the Egyptian language, and he is prosperous here. 
in the same place that was once the pit, the same place that was once so much trouble to him, God has now exalted him and caused it to be a place where he is blessed. He is prosperous in material blessing. He is prosperous in his family and in his children. He's now prosperous in the purpose God has given him. God is now using him to save the lives of thousands. What a fruitful life he now has. Now, the lesson for you and I here is this. In both of these names, Joseph is giving glory to God. He is praising God for his faithfulness, for his sovereignty, for his providence. It was God who made him forget his past suffering. It was God who has made him fruitful. Joseph is not living in pride and arrogance. His wealth and power have not gone to his head. He is still humble before God. He's still giving praise to the one to whom praise is due. And here we are, and maybe you read Joseph and what happened with Joseph, and you think, I wish God would bless me like that. I wish I had that kind of wealth. I wish I had that kind of recognition. I wish I had that kind of power. Well, let's take a moment and remember what God has done for us and what our true condition is. Because not only do we have the material blessings we have, whether they're great or small, and not only do we have our familial blessings, the the families that we have, but church, we have been saved from the wrath of God in hell by the blood of Jesus Christ. We now live in the unquenchable love of God. If we are Christians, we are going to heaven. Now, did you hear that? (laughs) You're going to heaven, which is a lot better than being prime minister of Egypt. You're going to heaven. You know the true God is your God. This God is your Father. You have His Spirit in your heart. You have His Word in your possession in a language that you can understand. You have His people around you to encourage you. You have the promise that one day He will wipe away every tear from your eye and that you will behold His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You have the promise that everything is working for your good, that God's grace is sufficient for every need that you have, that no trial will come your way that isn't a gift of love from His hands ultimately being used to make you Christ-like and to bring you into heaven. You have something far better than Joseph ever dreamed or imagined of. Are we as quick as Joseph was to give all the praise and glory and thanksgiving back to God? Are we quick to be a people of thankfulness? Could it be that sometimes we just settle in to this blessed life we have and even begin to become prideful as if we deserve it or even as if we earned it, as if it's ours by right rather than by gift of grace? Like Joseph, we ought to be a people. If if there's anybody in the world that ought to be this way, Christians ought to be this way. A people of humble, genuine, heartfelt thanksgiving and praise to God. And so are we. And if not, if we're not this way, why, why not? Are we not meditating on the gospel? Are we allowing our 
focus and attention to be so called on the passing things of this world that we're not meditating on the most important truths in the world, the truths of the Bible and what it says about who we are in Jesus Christ. So that's Joseph's sons. Now let's look at the days of famine. The days of famine. Let's begin reading in verse 53. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. And there was a famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And the Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, it's interesting. We actually have archaeological records that speak of seven-year famines in the land of Egypt. Uh, In fact, Egypt, much like Eastern Africa today, uh, was not a place in which famines were rare. In fact, they were somewhat common. But this famine was unlike other famines. This one was particularly severe, and it was particularly widespread. We do have archaeological records that speak of Egyptians during times of famine uh, being in such dire conditions that they would do what the people of, of Judah would do centuries later, which is they would be so hungry they would cook and eat their own offspring. And so this was pictured just ultimate poverty, picture ultimate famine here. Picture those, those pictures from Africa with the, the, the children with the extended bellies and the, the bright eyes. And, and, and that's, that's what we're talking about here. This was not a, a mild famine. Okay? This was a severe famine. This is people are about to die kind of famine. And it's not just in Egypt. It's, famine, it, it, it's, it's touching all of the known world. But in the midst of this crisis, we continue to see the wisdom that God has given to Joseph. We see that he was trustworthy, that he was faithful in fulfilling the responsibilities that Pharaoh gave to him. So that when the people come to Pharaoh and they're crying out for bread, what does Pharaoh say? Go see Joseph. It's under control. He's got it taken care of. Go see Joseph. Now, we see Joseph's wisdom in two ways here. First, the way these two paragraphs are written, it appears that Joseph does not open up the storehouses at the first sign of famine, right? We're told the famine began to come. Famines don't just show up overnight, right? They take time. And no doubt the first months of the famine were rough, but it was as the famine progressed that the circumstances became more and more dire for the people. And Joseph knew that this was going to be a seven-year famine. And so it appears that he waited until the famine had truly spread and become severe before he opened the storehouses. And so also we should learn to know the difference between a small trial and a greater trial, between a small need and a, a greater need. So if, if, we have a, uh, if, if we've done the Dave Ramsey thing, and we've, we've created an emergency fund, and let's say we have our, our $1,000 put aside in our emergency fund, and all of a sudden we decide we're going to go into that emergency fund and spend all of that money because our TV broke and we need another 60-inch 60, 60 HD TV. Right? That's an emergency. My TV broke. And then what happens the next week when the car breaks down? Right? 
So we need to have wisdom and discernment to know when are things tough and when are things dire. What is a serious need and what is a not-so-serious need? Well, Joseph was patient. He saved the food in the storehouses until he could save them no longer. He knew they were going to need to last for a long time or the people would perish. We also see the wisdom of Joseph in these paragraphs in that he rationed the food. Uh, The ESV in many translations render verse 56 to say that Joseph sold the grain to the Egyptians. But in the Hebrew, that word sold is literally, he broke into parts the grain for the Egyptians. And so the picture seems to be that he was rationing out the grain. That is, he would make sure that the people were fed today, but he didn't give them lots of food. He gave them what they needed and held some back because, hey, there's six more years to come. There's more famine ahead. And so he was wise in the way that he distributed the food. Now, by the way, the other truth for us to notice here is that God's word proved true. Because God chose to reveal to Pharaoh ahead of time what he was going to do, and he called on Pharaoh to make preparations. And what God promised was going to happen, happened. And by the way, that is how it is with us. God, in his gracious providence, just like with Pharaoh, has chosen to reveal to us something about the future. Like the the revelation that he gave to Pharaoh, there was both a positive and a negative. There was a a seven years of plenty coming and then a seven years of famine coming. Well, God tells us something about the future as well, and it includes both positive and negative. Positively, I think the Bible is very clear that in the future, the gospel will be preached to all nations. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to every ethnos, right? And then the end will come. So you can count on it. Now, we want to be a part of that, but even if Mount Hermon sinfully and disobediently says, we don't want to do anything with missions, we're going to stay out of that, I know we wouldn't say that, but even if we did say that, guess what? God doesn't need us. He's going to do this. The gospel will be proclaimed in every nation. People will be saved from every tongue, tribe, and and nation in the world. Revelation guarantees that. Jesus guaranteed that in the gospel of Matthew. That's positive, amen? It's good news. In the future, the gospel is getting to the four corners of the earth. The gospel is speeding forth. Christ is drawing people to himself. And that will continue. On the negative side, we're told that as the gospel goes forward and the church is being built, there will also be increased hostility. There will be increased persecution of Christ's church. Babylon, this theme that we find in the Bible, will continue to grow, right? Babylon represents these, these powerful governments on which people depend, on which people, people love these governments. They praise these governments, and yet these governments are going to be increasingly wielding their power against God's people. Did you know that there were more Christians killed and persecuted, killed or imprisoned in the 20th century than in all of the previous centuries combined? There has been more governmental power wielded against Christians in the last century than in every century leading up to the last century combined. The Bible told us that's coming and we should expect it to continue. Antichrist will come. Those who deny the gospel and seek to wield their power against Christianity. These things should not take us by surprise. We have been warned. And just like with Pharaoh... God's word proves true. Now, Pharaoh was wise. He appointed Joseph, and they made preparations. We've been told something of the future. 
are we making preparations? Are we preparing our own souls? And particularly, are we preparing the souls of our children and grandchildren? Are, doing, are we doing all that we can to ensure that they will love Christ more than this world, even more than their own lives, when things get tough for them? If it happens that the days of severe persecution of Christians comes even to this land, will our children and grandchildren be ready? We cannot look into the eyes of our children and grandchildren and say, God has promised you an easy life. No, we are living right now, honestly, in America, even though Christians' rights are beginning to disappear, we're still living in the glory days. We're still living in the days of plenty. But days of famine will come. Things will not necessarily be this easy for our children and grandchildren. To believe the gospel, to live obediently to Christ, are we preparing them for that day to come? Or will they dare give up what is eternal for the things that are passing? Now, we'll close with this. One of the points that I've been trying to stress throughout this series is that God intends for us to look at the account of Joseph and his brothers through New Testament lenses. And when we do, we can't help but notice the many ways that Joseph seems to be pointing us to Christ. He he seems to be a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen that in passage after passage. And when we read this passage that way, we see it yet again. Because here is an ancient world in danger of perishing. And what do they need to live? They need bread. And God has entrusted the storehouses of grain to this one man, Joseph. If you want grain, you must go to Joseph. People go to Pharaoh, he points them to Joseph. And from Joseph's storehouses, they live. Well, you see the analogy. The whole world is perishing. Every person on planet Earth is in danger of perishing. And we're not talking about perishing physically. We're talking about the more fundamental truth, the more ultimate truth. All of humanity is in danger of perishing spiritually. Because of our sins, all people are headed towards an eternal kind of perishing in a place called hell. What do they need? They need the bread of life. They need that which will cause their souls to live and not die. They need Christ. In John 6, there was this discussion about the manna that God had sent down from heaven. And Jesus said, in the context of that discussion, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. What is this bread from heaven? The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, the bread that God provided for His people, both in the account of Joseph, but also in the days of Moses, was a picture of something deeper. Christ Himself. God created us with mouths and tongues and the need for food, ultimately to learn this spiritual truth. Just as our bodies need daily bread, our souls need Christ. Your body needs food to live. Your soul needs Christ to live. And so Jesus said... Let me find it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And so Joseph created storehouses in each city to distribute the bread to the people. 
Jesus has created local churches throughout the earth where he, the bread of life, is offered to any who will receive him. That's what the Lord's Supper is a picture of, right? It's a picture of the gospel. Come, take of the bread, take of the cup, profess your faith in Christ. Local churches are pillar and buttresses of truth. We are the storehouses of the gospel. People come to find the gospel here, to find the bread of life on which they will feast and live. That is ultimately the central message of this text. It is an evangelistic message. We, by nature, like the people of Egypt, are perishing. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But God has provided a way of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it is to Jesus we must go if we will live. So we ought to run to Christ. We ought to feast upon Christ. We ought to rest upon the merits of Christ. This is the way of salvation. And I know many of you in this room have experienced this and you are experiencing this life of faith. But if there is anyone here who has not experienced this, if you're still perishing, run to Christ. Run to the bread of life. Rest on Him. Trust in Him. And He will save you from your sins and you will live. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.